0: Welcome back to Episode 3 of the Complexity Premier Podcast. Today we're covering a wide range of topics, including the Australian Federal Government Budget Surplus, the Great Australian Housing Debate, Risk to RMBS, Unisuper investing $1.3 billion into hybrids, whether the banks could cut for the RBA, APRA's recent comments on its TLAC policy, and more on listed investment companies and listed investment trusts. I'm your co-host, Singi Ann Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at bar Capital.
1: And you've also got with you today, of course, uh, your other co-host, Christopher Joy. I'm a Co-Chief Investment Officer at bar and a Portfolio Manager. And we want to say, guys, thanks so much for your support. Uh, there have been an impressively large number of downloads over episodes one and two. We've really been overwhelmed by the support. Uh, We've certainly learned a hell of a lot doing the podcast and we hope that you will uh, learn a little as well. Uh, And uh, I trust that the professionalism of the product will slowly improve over time.
0: So starting with the Australian Federal Government budget surplus, in what could be an electoral game changer, the government's budget has remarkably moved into a full surplus on several key measures. The net operating balance and fiscal balance report a surplus of more than $7 billion over the year to February. That's 12 months ahead of the government's forecast, as Chris, you predicted it would do. Analysis prepared by Comsec's Craig James shows that a rolling 12-month budget surplus on the fiscal and net operating balance first emerged in September 2018 and has gradually increased every month since in what is now the best fiscal result since December 2008. And back in 2017, Chris, you projected an early return to surplus despite analysts and rating agencies universally criticizing the government's budget forecast as wildly optimistic. They have in fact proven to be far too pessimistic. So even on the preferred underlying cash balance measure, the budget is statistically in with a tiny deficit of just $953 million over the year to February. That's compared to average monthly moves north of $6 billion. The underlying cash balance will likely swing into surplus on a rolling 12-month basis before June 30 and is already the strongest fiscal outcome Australia has produced since January 2009. Chris, do you want to explain what has been driving this?
1: Yeah, as you say, Yingers, uh, the budget performance has been incredible. Uh, and it's particularly interesting in the context of the looming May federal election. We have Treasurer Josh Frydenberg set to release his first ever budget on Tuesday for the avoidance of doubt. It is the 29th of March today, so some listeners may actually have the benefit of that information. The real question is, does Frydenberg project a surplus for this financial year? So does he deliver a surplus in FY19? And as you mentioned, on two of the key measures, the fiscal balance and the net operating balance, he's already sitting on a rolling $7 billion to $10 billion surplus. He's broadly in balance on the main underlying cash balance measure. um, And it's reasonable to presume that he might expect that to move into a full surplus by the end of 30 June 2019. And I think the question is, does this tilt the probabilities Um, perhaps in the favor of ScoMo and Frydenberg when they come to contest the election. Obviously nobody right now gives them a snowball's chance in hell of ultimately prevailing. And when I say tilt the probabilities, um, I mean uh, from the perspective of a rank underdog. Uh, And we're talking about improving probabilities to be more precise. As to why the budget has uh, stormed back and I actually had a chart in my AFR column today. That tracks the budget performance since 2000. You can see that whilst the coalition was in power between 2000 and 2007, there were consistent surpluses aside from a couple of years where there were very, very small deficits. And then obviously the GFC hit in 2008 and we started reporting $60 billion annual deficits. Uh, And now, uh, again, on some measures, we're basically in surplus. Uh, The coalition had a very smart forecasting strategy when they came to power in relation to the budget. And they really underclubbed all their assumptions uh, in relation to the Aussie dollar, commodity prices, nominal GDP, and the jobless rate. And in short, whilst they were criticized universally by analysts and credit rating agencies, and I think it's well known that I didn't share those criticisms, and as you mentioned, we've uh, forecast a surplus in FY19 a year ahead of the coalition's numbers, um, which is more or less what we've got right now, Um, but years ahead of what the coalition anticipated back in 2017 and many, many years in advance of what the market was thinking uh, in 2017 when we first Aid this view, uh, and so they've outperformed on all those those variables. Commodities, commodity prices, iron ore, coal, and LNG have been much higher than anticipated. Nominal GDPs surprisingly the upside. The jobless rate has fallen from six point four percent down to four point nine percent, below the RBA's full employment threshold. And Scomo has really been uh, preternaturally seeking to, or characteristically seeking to under-promise and over-deliver, and this is quite a deliberate strategy. He also prioritized, and he told me this in person a number of years ago, uh, saving the AAA rating. Uh, he was very, very, very focused on this, um, actively communicating with Standard & Poor's, understanding what the key rating downgrade triggers might have been, and ensuring that the budget met their requirements and S&P actually upgraded Australia's rating uh, last year. We had forecast this uh, in 2017, I'm not aware of any other analysts that were anticipating an upgrade. So the rating was on AAA negative and they upgraded it to AAA stable and certainly in 2017 the consensus view was that Australia would lose that prized AAA rating and go down to AA+. That's pretty important because it would have had the immediate knock on consequence of downgrading all the major banks senior bond ratings from AA minus to A plus, which translates practically for Main Street into um, a fairly material interest rate hike of about 15 basis points. Standard RBA hike is 25 basis points. Our modeling suggested that the banks would lift rates by about 15 basis points to compensate for um, a jump in their funding costs as they moved out of the AA band into the single A band as a bond issuer. Yeah, so it'll be fascinating to see if the coalition gets any traction with this uh, budget narrative. And there's certainly some economic evidence to support the hypothesis that since 1990, they've been the more responsible economic manager. If you look at the history of deficits and surpluses, under Labor, we saw significant deficits between 1990 and 1996. The coalition comes to power. And Howard Castillo deliver surpluses effectively from 1997 through to 2007, save one small deficit in 2001. Then Kevin Rudd takes control, delivers deficits, starting with a $27 billion deficit in 08, 09, all the way through to 2013. Um, And the deficits are basically the biggest cumulative deficits in history. And the numbers are massive, 27 billion 54 bill, 47 bill, 43 bill, 19 bill. Coalition come to power in 2013. They report their first big deficit of almost 49 bill, but obviously by the time we hit 2019, they're in surplus. So maybe they'll get some loving on that front. It's obviously an open question.
0: So I want to turn our attention on something that's quite pervasive among most Australians' minds, and that's the Great Australian Housing Debate. And one of the things that vocal Aussie economic bears miss, and they've been relentlessly wrong since the GFC, is that we now have significant fiscal and monetary policy ammunition and store of recessionary risks materialise. And during the week, Chris, you did devastate one such doomsayer, a News Limited columnist called John Adams, on a televised debate hosted by Peter Switzer. And Adams argued that Australia's elevated private debt levels mean that we're destined to experience an economic Armageddon that will force house prices down by 40% in a manner similar to that endured by the Irish during the GFC. Yet he seemed intellectually paralyzed when you asked him to explain what factors will necessitate the deleveraging that precipitates this apocalypse. So Chris, tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, Adams and other economic extremists that I've debated before, like Steve Keen, back in the GFC in 2008, we publicly debated many times, they ignore an essential question, which is the serviceability of those very high debt levels that they're bemoaning, and crucially, the interaction between the level of debt, incomes and interest rates. I also find that whilst they talk a lot about private debt, they don't really reference public debt much at all, and the fact that Australia's net government debt to GDP ratio, is incredibly low by global standards, which is one of the reasons we have a AAA rating. So what's really interesting is if you look at the average home loan rate uh, in in Australia between 1980 and 1995, it's amazing to think this, but it was a staggeringly high 12.7% over that period. So people were paying on average 12.7% mortgage rates. And since 1995, Uh, the average rate has fallen about 45% to 7%. And it's currently only 5.4% for a standard variable mortgage rate at the headline level, or you can get a discounted rate officially at 4.7%. And I know that on my home loan, I think I'm paying around 3.5%. So this structural decline in the price of money as a consequence of the advent of very low inflation in the early 1990s, um, the emergence of so-called price stability and the fact that central banks adopted inflation targets all around the world. It has allowed the Australian economy to service much higher debt burdens. So this is why despite the sharp increase in the household debt to income ratio, which I did forecast in 2013, would hit record highs and I've regularly expressed a lot of concern about. The fact of the matter is, is that the 9.1% share of income, that is the 9.1%, share of household income that's accounted for by interest repayments on debt isn't actually materially different to the average 8.2 percent rate that's held over the last 40 years. So yes, the debt levels have increased, but debt serviceability has stayed broadly the same, and that's because there's been a regime change in the price of money. The cost of capital has structurally decreased. And if adversity were to suddenly loom and the RBA wants to um, quickly alleviate borrowers' debt servicing burdens, they can slash the cash rate to zero. Uh, We do have some ammo left with monetary policy. The cash rate's at 1.5% today. Uh, And the RBA's latest research suggests that that would actually increase house prices by more than 30% because um, more than eight out of 10 Australian mortgage borrowers are on variable rate. The monetary policy transmission mechanism is immensely powerful. The reality is we're a very Uh, interest rate elastic economy. It's quite different to the rest of the world where in the US, most borrowers are fixed rate. Um, In the UK, for example, as another illustration, around half of all home loans are also fixed rate. Uh, And in demolishing this Adams character, who frankly, is, I'd never heard of before. Um, I don't think the guy has any profile, notwithstanding he is writing for News Limited. Uh, And I was roped into the debate by Peter Switzer, who asked me to represent him. Um, but I was happy to finish the guy, um, brutally, if I can say so. <laughs> I've sort of got UFC images that are springing to mind. But but one of the things I showed was um, Dr. Alex Joyner's research. Uh, Alex is chief economist at IFM, and uh, he has built this model of house prices that I've referenced many times over the years. And what he does is he takes the median house price in 1980 and he indexes it it up by the change in household incomes between 1980 and 2018, and he also indexes it up by the change in borrowing capacity resulting from changes in mortgage rates. He actually keeps LVRs, so loan to property value ratio is constant. That's interesting in that assumption because actually LVRs since 1980 have increased. You know, you can borrow 90 to 95% today of the value of your home, you couldn't do that in 1980. But Joiner assumes that away, so he keeps LVRs constant and the only thing that changes the median house price in 1980 is household income growth and changes in home loan rates. And that simple model can actually explain a hundred percent of the appreciation in Aussie house prices since 1980. Um, Quite accurately, it's a very powerful explanatory model. And if you think that the RBA's cash rate's gonna stay at one and a half percent forever, which I don't think it will, but if you did, then current house prices according to that model are actually theoretically about three percent cheap. Now, if you believe what the RBA says, which it's in the last 12 months also expressed the view that the neutral cash rate is around three and a half percent. So if you think that the cash rate has to normalize to say between two and a half and three percent, then joiners modeling implies that our house prices are still overvalued by about three to 13%. Now to be clear, notwithstanding that I was debating this nutcase um, and sort of sitting a few facts straight, I'm not a housing bull, um, yes, I, I think fairly accurately projected the boom between 2013 and 2017. And I don't think in 2013 anyone was uh, really expecting double digit house price growth. But I think, as we talked previously on the podcast, you know, I even called the RBA and, and warned them that we'd get precisely that and that APRA would be forced to introduce macro constraints on lending, which was to occur about 18 months later in uh, December 2014 when APRA sent its first letter to the banks and um, put the 10% limit on investment loan growth and then also um, required them to use a minimum 7% mortgage rate when assessing repayment capacity, which is obviously miles above the current sort of discounted rate around 4.6% according to the RBA. Um, But anyway, coming back to the housing bull moniker, um, in early 2017, I called the boom being over, and we projected that house prices would fall 10%, and I think we were the only mainstream analyst to have such a negative uh, case at that point in time. And 12 months later, when it became clear that Labor would likely win the election and eliminate negative gearing whilst hiking capital gains tax by 50%, we upgraded our forecast to a 10 to 15% drawdown, peaked to trough in Aussie house prices. And I'll say that I think within a month almost all economists had suddenly and quite radically shifted their forecast towards our view. Um, just on negative gearing as an aside, like you know, people say, well, Labor's grandfathering existing property. So if you have an investment property today, you'll still be able to negatively gear and you won't be slugged with you know, 50% higher CGT. But that's not entirely true because when you come to sell that property, you'll be selling to a buyer who can't negatively gear and who has to pay 50% higher CGT. So the fact is that the value of all homes are gonna be affected by these policies. Uh, now, typically I'm not talking about the merit of the policy and uh, you know the policies may have merit. I haven't actually publicly expressed uh, an opinion on that. So, you know, whilst we're very focused on the fat tails of the economic distribution, our central case remains that the US economy is gonna to continue to power along. We're assuming that the trade war will be resolved between Trump and Xi um, and we think that the housing correction is gonna be orderly as it has been thus far and crucially represents basically the biggest Unwinding of Aussie financial imbalances that we've seen in decades. And I've mentioned before, this risk reduction, our view, S&P and Moody's view, is all that it's positive for bank creditors um, because you have uh, this unwinding of a a massive left-tail risk uh, as housing corrects. But it is demonstrably negative for other asset classes, like recently issued residential mortgage-backed securities or RMBS, where the only thing protecting the asset or the investment is the value of the homes underpinning the loans. And I think people, investors, you know, there's a lot of dumb money uh, floating around and people often confuse bank credit with rmps and they're quite fundamentally different. I mean, bank creditors get the benefit of government guaranteed deposits uh, in terms of uh, stability of funding and certainty of funding for you know, the company that they're lending to through, say, uh, a senior ranking bond. They get the benefit of access to the RBA's emergency liquidity facilities. So you can repo these bonds but also the banks themselves can prevent insolvency and liquidity risks by tapping the RBA's committed liquidity facility. And crucially they also get a balance sheet, that is a bank balance sheet, with exceptionally seasoned loans that were originated over decades um, with heavily amortized loan to value ratios um, and from a creditors' perspective, it's also important that we have, um, certainly with major banks, well-beating equity capital ratios that are continuing to rise. And you know, New Zealand's the New Zealand central bank's desire to force the major banks to raise, you know, the best part of fifteen billion dollars of additional equity is only going to continue that process, um, or you know, force that process to persist for a considerable period of time. So I kind of think that's why we're seeing this phenomenon whereby you know bank bond spreads are compressing sharply, uh, whilst RMBs spreads have not really participated at all in the rally. Uh, they've kind of moved sideways since the wides of last year, and you're seeing a tremendous bid for you know major bank senior specifically. Um, five-year major bank paper is now bid in the high 80s over bank bills. Um, so that's uh, 80 basis points or 0.8%, more specifically five year paper, I think it's bid around eighty eight eighty nine right now. So you know, 0.88% or 0.89% above uh, three month bank bill swap rate or three month BBSW. And you're also seeing a, a very strong bid for securities like bank hybrids. So we saw Macquarie's latest hybrid list this week. On Thursday, that is uh, MQGPD at uh, 102 seventy, So that was a 2.7% capital gain on day one, um, quite incredible performance. But it's obviously a different kettle of fish when it comes to um, assets that have specific dependencies on housing like RMBS.
0: So Chris you mentioned RMBS earlier and with respect to that when assessing the creditworthiness of residential mortgage backed securities i.e. RMBS we undertake detailed quantitative analysis including revaluing the homes that protect these bonds at regular intervals and developing unique RMBS default and prepayment indices so as house prices fall the loan to value ratios or the LVRs underpinning an RMBS portfolio rise in lockstep which reduces the equity protecting bondholders. So using Bloomberg data on the current amortized value of the loans in all Australian RMBS pools, the LVR distribution of the loans and the geographic location of the properties, we at Coolabar have marked to market all the 2017, 2018 and 2019 issues after accounting for the amortization or pay down of loans through to February 2019. Chris, do you want to talk to us through the results of our analysis?
1: Yeah, I think this analysis is very important, Ying is and I'm actually surprised by how many investors don't do um, the work we've done. That is to mark to market the value of the loans in these RMBS pools, um, which is especially important when house prices are plummeting in the manner that we're observing right now. And since we published this analysis, I, um, I released it via my AFR column, but we also published a story on Livewire, I think we'll try and put a link up on the show notes. We've actually had quite a few investors contact us, you know, wanting to catch up and understand how they can do similar research. So what we did, um, as you mentioned, we looked at recent issues and we found some disconcertingly large jumps in the share of high risk loans inside RMBS portfolios that have LVRs or loan to value ratios above 90% compared to the share that um, the issuer reported when they sold these bonds to investors. So I listed, um, particularly in the Livewire article, I have a chart that shows um, a very large number of pretty much every non-bank RMBS deal in 2017, 2018, and 2019. Um, actually, to be precise, I think there are a few deals that are okay, but you know, there's scores of these RMBS issues and you see massive moves in the share of uh, LVRs Share of loans with LVR is above ninety percent. We're talking about, uh, and I'm looking at the chart right now. You know, originally many deals were reporting statistics around you know anywhere from zero percent through to seven or eight percent, and now you know there are deals with twenty percent of the entire bond that has loans with less than ten percent equity but most of them have moved up in the 10 to 20% range from you know, the circa 5% level, which is really worrying because if you start to see an increase in arrears, what that means is your recovery rate's gonna be lower um, and therefore your expected losses rise, which means you know, by definition you need to require a higher uh, credit risk premium uh, on the asset. That means wider credit spreads which means the bond prices need to fall. Um, and I think a lot of asset managers have loaded it up on RMBS recently at the worst possible time. As you know, Ying is, we exited our portfolio about $400 million of RMBS in February 2018, uh, which was actually the post-GFC tights for RMBS spreads. Uh, very contrarian trade at the time. Um, but we've had $100 billion of RMBS issue, issuance in Australian dollars since the end of 2016. and sixteen, and. Obviously, I think most funds have loaded up on this stuff um, and I worry about those exposures. Um, We have also discovered some recent RMBS deals where the share of loans that are underwater, so these are loans with LVRs, at 100% or more has increased dramatically. Obviously, when they issue these bonds, there are no loans underwater, or there shouldn't be. But we found one transaction, a very popular transaction that I think a lot of fund managers hold, where it looks like uh, about 10% of all loans are underwater. Uh, And the bad news is is that these numbers are all getting worse as house prices continue to fall. As I mentioned, the peak to trough fall across the eight capital cities um, since the apogee in late 2017 is around, you know nine or ten percent. Our base case, if labor comes to power, is that goes to 15 percent. Um, so we've still got significant price declines ahead, and I think the risk is, um, the outcomes are worse. Uh, if there's, um, you know, a bit of a hyperbolic reaction to um, labor removing negative gearing and increasing capital gains tax. Now, while the equity protecting Aussie RMBS is shrinking rapidly, um, we also as you know, developed the world's first hedonic or compositionally adjusted index of RMBS defaults um, because S&P was out there saying, listen, you know, RMBS arrears are very benign. Since 2014, they've been moving sideways. And I have this chart in the Livewire article and we compositionally adjusted this. I think we might've mentioned this in the last podcast um, for the date the bond was issued, the life of, the average life of the loans in the bond, um, the geographic uh, distribution of the loans and, Uh, the weighted average LVR in the portfolio. And once we compositionally adjust all RMBS issues, or more specifically, we compositionally adjust their arrears rates, we see that default rates in Australia on the home loans protecting RMBS have been increasing consistently since 2014. And this actually reconciles very closely with the RBA's data on this subject. And I have the RBA chart in the Livewire article, and you can actually see that uh, total non-performing home loans in Australia today are basically at GFC peaks at around uh, 0.9%, just under 1% of all loans. And that's up from about um, 0.5, 0.6%. It's quite a sharp, consistent increase. A final concern, or actually a penultimate concern, is we're also observing declining mortgage prepayment rates. What that means is you used to have um, a situation where a lot of borrowers were ahead of their scheduled balance payments, and RMBS bonds are sold on the basis of an expected life basically um, an expected period over which you'll be repaid uh, your principal and interest. But if prepayment rates drop, as they've done, and they've now dropped to the lowest level in over 10 years, it blows out the expected life of the RMBS uh, security, and this adversely impacts investors' assumed credit spreads. And clearly, if the economy starts to decelerate and we don't get interest rate relief, which we may, um, this is another headwind for the sector. The final, I guess, uh, anxiety is, there has been this, in post to post-GFC terms unprecedented surge in RMBS issuance that I mentioned. Um, we're seeing the highest levels of non-bank issuance since you know, 2006, 2007. What's especially worrying is that the seasoning or the average life of these loans is more or less at all time lows. So you know we've seen non-bank deals from Pepper uh, and I think Liberty where the average life of the loan is about two or three months late last year. The RBA has highlighted this trend as well. And what that means is if the loan isn't seasoned, um, there's a few issues, one, you've had no amortization, so you haven't built up any equity to protect the loan. Uh, And two, the probability of default curve peaks around year two or three, so you've basically got the worst arrears ahead of you in probability terms. So this is um, one of the reasons why we exited the sector in February 2018 and why we're very, very nervous about any exposures to bonds Uh, RMBS securities issued since 2017 by non-bank lenders that have high LVRs with low seasoning.
0: So when the chief risk officer at a major bank told you, Chris, that he'd like house prices to shrink another 10%, you get a sense of just how valuable this mean reversion in housing is. And that's why Standard & Poor's has warned about the risk of downgrading recently issued junior ranking RMBS at the same time as they're signalling that they may upgrade the major bank's hybrids and subordinated bonds once Australia's economic imbalances normalise. The de-risking of major bank balance sheets is a trade that Unisuper's CIO, John Pierce, has been aggressively capitalizing on. Chris, you recently sat down with John. What did he actually tell you?
1: Yeah, Yingas, I had the uh, good fortune to be able to sit down with John Pierce, the CIO of Unisuper, for a bit of a chat. Um, and he was happy for me to disclose that he'd actually invested 300 million dollars into NAB's latest hybrid in February, um, NAB PF. It had been previously reported that he'd allocated 200 million, but incredible numbers uh, nonetheless. Of course, he's done exceptionally well in that trade. NAB PF is trading almost up around 102 dollars, so he's got a 2% capital gain. Plus, he presumably uh, would have negotiated a rebate on the sales commissions as a cornerstone investor in the deal. So he's probably made 10 to $15 million plus in profits on that uh, one investment in uh, around a couple of weeks. And what was interesting, I think, was that John's been allocating to hybrids, notwithstanding the debate around um, the ability of non taxpayers or low taxpayers to claim cash refunds from the ATO for their franking credits? Uh, I guess his view is like the other 92% of taxpayers who pay tax and who can fully utilize franking credits um, in the event that Labor wins, he can also do so, and he absolutely confirmed that in our. Discussion um, And at a credit spread of 4% above the bank bill swap rate or a expected running yield just under 6%, um, Pierce reckons he's earning, quote-unquote, an equity risk premium-like return um, with about one-third of the historic volatility of shares and the protection associated with sitting one notch up the corporate capital structure. Even in the GFC, um, the total return loss is on hybrids were less than half that suffered by major bank equities Uh, so they've definitely done their job I think in that uh, capital structure respect what was also I think fascinating was John was happy for me to reveal that he had invested a billion dollars in four different major bank hybrid deals in 2016 when their credit spreads had blown wider much as they did last year Following uh, Labor's announcement in March, we saw hybrid spreads move from 3% above bank bills to about 4% above bank bills, or 100 basis points wider. Um, And in 2016, actually, in February, they blew you know, to five to 6% above bank bills. And that's um, certainly proven to be an outstanding trade. Um, so I think it kind of shows there are institutional investors in hybrids, notwithstanding the view that they're regarded as a bit of a, a retail investment. Um, John's hypothesis though was that hybrids, um, firstly he thinks they are obviously terrific investments given he's allocated 1.3 billion of unisippers circa 60 billion. Um, to the space. But he kind of says that they've fallen between the cracks uh, from an asset allocation perspective because Yingers, the equity guys, don't understand hybrids and fixed income managers and you know, Sleepy Hollow here in Australia, I suspect a lot of the time, and they either don't understand hybrids or feel they can't price the franking credits, um, <clears throat> which is just simply not right because every fund administrator um, in the country prices uh, and utilizes franking credits for their equity portfolios. And uh, I think he also expressed a view that you know, hybrid spreads today, mm. or at least when he invested in NPF, were about 70 basis points wider than their pre-labour levels, um, and 140 basis points wider than they were in 2014, despite the fact that the major banks have um, halved their risk-weighted leverage since that time. So you're getting more than compensated for you know, the potential concerns around cash refunds. Uh, I think he used the words that he thought that the market had completely overreacted um, to that contingency. Interestingly, um, I think he shares my views on the risks around listed investment companies and listed investment trusts. And you mentioned at the start of the podcast, Yingers, uh, that we were gonna talk about that. Um, and you know, Pierce made the point that clearly there is a risk when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars of conflicted sales commissions being paid to brokers and advisors um, who are presumably encouraging their retail clients to invest in these risky products and allocate away from other asset classes, often safer asset classes like cash. Um, bonds, or even hybrids, into, or equities, um, into, you know, leveraged equity hedge funds like L1, a three times levered long short equity fund, clearly much riskier than a direct equities portfolio. And that's obviously been a disaster for folks um, who subscribed originally, given I think it's trading at a buck forty seven and the subscription price was $2. Um, but Pierce and others have also highlighted the fact that, you know, a lot of these LICs are investing in highly liquid assets. So you know, high-yield bonds or so-called junk bonds. <clears throat> Some of these portfolios have a bit of liquidity, but often um, others have very little or none at all. And the concern would be, I guess, that if there's no liquidity and the assets aren't being revalued properly, then the pricing isn't necessarily accurate. And it's especially hard for a retail investor to evaluate a portfolio of hundreds of loans or high yield bonds um, and to get their head around the evolving risks. Uh, and it's an open question as to whether they should be shifting out of cash or equities into that asset class. I, as I've said many times before, I absolutely think there's a role for poor in portfolios for high yield and direct loans. Um, they're fantastic asset classes and there are fantastic fund managers offering solutions in those asset classes. But I think uh, you know we had the future of financial advice laws, the FOFA laws introduced in 2012 to completely ban all conflicted sales commissions being paid from fund managers to advisors to encourage them to sell funds to retail investors. And if you raise money through an LIC or a listed investment trust, an LIT, there's an exemption from FOFA that was introduced in 2014 as we mentioned in the last podcast. And so there's no limit on the commissions that are being paid and, you know, I think I saw the other day, um, you know, the perpetual guys, all power to them raised $440 million in three days um, for a product that, you know, I think if you went through five channels, there's not a snowball's chance in hell you'd be raising that money um, in that space of time. So, you know, the commissions demonstrably have an impact. Um, so the problem with the liquid assets in LICS or LITs is, the risk for mums and dads is, that they can trade at a discount because if suddenly everyone discovers that some of the loans or bonds have gone bad, and everyone wants to exit, you can't redeem like a normal unit trust. It's a closed fund. Um, so you've got to find a buyer for your shares. And that's why LICs and LITs can trade at huge discounts. And that's what's happened with that L1. Everyone has sought to exit and it's now trading at a significant discount to NTA. Um, and I guess people are gonna learn the hard way that history will likely repeat itself. Um, so it was interesting to see uh, peers, you pick up that thematic.
0: So Chris, as you pointed out, there's been a bid for major banks senior paper and there's been a really strong performance in hybrids. How do you think this relates to bank funding costs and do you think the banks could end up doing the heavy lifting for the RBA?
1: Yeah, Ying is I did recently write in the IFR that I thought that the smartest thing that RBA Governor Phil Lowe could do is get the banks to cut rates for him Um and preserving um, by doing so his monetary policy ammunition for a real crisis. And what's interesting, I may have misread this, but you know, on. One interpretation the RBA hinted it might do exactly this in its latest minutes. Um, now it may have been talking about trying to convince the banks to pass through as much of any prospective interest rate cut. Um, but firstly, you know the RBA in contrast to you know many claims the banks have been imprudent lenders, which is just not borne out by the Aussie mortgage arrears data, notwithstanding our concerns about rising arrears. the fact of the matter is that the 90 day default rate around, is incredibly low by international standards. Um, And the RBA's views on this are crystal clear. They think the banks are currently being too tough. So we saw the head of financial stability, Michelle Bullock, um, claim that her hope, quote unquote, was that now the Royal Commission is finished and APRA has finished removing its macroprudential benchmarks the banks will start to lend again. Um, And in a direct appeal to exactly the same people the Royal Commission excoriated for lending too liberally, Bullock begged, please think very hard about whether your lending standards are too tight and whether you can loosen up a bit. Not the sort of rhetoric you expect to hear from a cautious conservative central bank. And while UBS's uh, prediction of a credit crunch has, as we uh, consistently argued, never remotely come to pass in the sense that year-on-year housing credit growth has remained very firmly positive at around 5%, um, the banks did become rationally more risk-averse during the commission uh, following the interim report insinuating that they had potentially run afoul of Australia's responsible lending laws. At the time, I counted that the commission's reading of these laws was wrong and the banks hadn't breached them. We did a hell of a lot of DD on this subject and this position was fully vindicated um, by the federal court in its analysis of asset claims, ASIC's claims against Westpac and specifically the court confirmed our views that the banks could rely on independent proxies for borrowers' living costs and they did not actually have to verify um, their expense claims, they could rely on those claims and still comply with the laws. And crucially, you know, Hay backflipped on the subject and basically deferred to the courts and hinted that the government might need to rewrite the laws. So coming back to funding costs and your question about that, Ying, is um, in the most recent minutes, the RBA disclosed that members had discussed the RBA's operations in the repo markets, the repurchase arrangement markets, and their role in achieving Um, the RBA's target for the cash rate. And I think smart participants inferred that this could be a signal signal the RBA might help normalize bank funding uh, costs. And it is a complex subject, but we developed the hypothesis in um, mid 2018 that firstly there'd been an enormous increase in foreign demand to borrow money from uh, Aussie banks in Aussie dollars via repo. Um, And the RBA's data shows that this had been a 70 to 80 billion dollar increase in repo demand from foreigners. Now repo's a very balance sheet intensive asset because the assets and liabilities don't net, they get double counted. And the short term repo rate is meant to sit really close to the RBA's cash rate. But what we've seen is it's consistently spiked to GFC like spreads above it at the end of each quarter since late 2017. Interestingly for the first time in March, this hasn't happened, perhaps because the RBA has intervened in the repo market. And we we think that the repo rates were spiking because the banks were hitting limits on how much they could lend via repo. And they were seeking to shrink their balance sheets into quarter end um, to support their uh, equity, liquidity, and funding ratios, which get marked at the end of the quarter. Um, And the RBA ultimately uh, controls repo costs through its own repo facilities that backstop in turn the bank's repo facilities, which they use when they're lending to these foreigners. Um, And it can actually um, set the repo rates uh, all things being equal, by intervening in that mark, market. The problem for the banks has been that their cost of borrowing, which is proxied by the unsecured bank bill swap rate, or so-called BBSW, it ultimately has to price above the secured repo rate as an unsecured rate, and as repo rates have climbed, so too has the BBSW rate inflating the bank's funding costs across all their wholesale liabilities, because those uh, liabilities are set at a margin above BBSW. Crucially, conditions as I mentioned really normalised. Um, BBSW. BBSW's dropped from 2.1%. So this is a three month bank bill swap rate has dropped from 2.1% to 1.8%. Um, repo rates have normalized. And as you mentioned, years, we've seen um, the major banks five year cost of borrowing via senior bonds fall from 1.15% above three month BBSW at the start of January to probably around 0.88% today. So that's quite a dramatic reduction in funding costs. Um, And the RBA drew attention to this, that there had been a kind of a decline, a small decline in marginal funding costs, notwithstanding that actually overall bank credit spreads still remain miles above their levels in January last year. So in January last year, five-year major bank paper got down to 0.72% in the secondary market above BBSW. I think ANZ printed at 0.77% in January in the primary market. And in 2014, we saw five year major bank senior spreads trading in the sort of 0.6% range um, compared to, as I mentioned, 0.88% today, which is kind of bizarre given, as I mentioned again earlier, the major banks have dramatically de-risked their businesses and their leverage since 2014. So what is intriguing is if, we get more competition in the mortgage market and we're gonna definitely get that because the non-bank lenders have been issuing RMBS like it's going out of fashion, like crazy volumes as we've talked about already from you know the Peppers, the Liberties, the First Max, et cetera. And all that money will be poured into home loans um, and they'll be contesting at the margin um, the major banks market share. And so I think we're actually gonna see two things happen. I think we're gonna see the banks starting to loosen their lending standards somewhat and unwind that rational spike in risk aversion in response to the Royal Commission's interim report. And you've got the RBA up there sort of exercising moral suasion, incenting them to do that. And then I think competition is gonna encourage much more aggressive discounting of home loan rates. Um, and in theory, that could do the work for the RBA if the RBA is patient. Um, I think the RBA has a tendency to be jawboned by financial markets. Markets are putting a, a tremendous amount of pressure on Phil Lowe to cut rates. Um, you know, the RBA I think gets the yibs pretty quickly, so I wouldn't be surprised to see a cut. But if Phil is listening and mate, you exercise the option to wait, big fella, um, as I would. Um, uh, I think the banks will actually end up doing some of the work for you. Remember also, Ying, as you well know, um, as a result of APRA's macro constraints on investment lending, investment loan rates, so home loan rates for investment loans increased by 25 to 50 basis points. So the banks, all those restrictions have now been dissolved. APRA has released them. And so there's nothing stopping the banks um, cutting rates. The counter argument is of course, um, that you know they've got a tremendous Increase in the intensity of their compliance and regulatory costs. And if ASIC's going to try and sue them for everything they've ever done in the past, then uh, those costs could escalate. Um, and then more generally with deleveraging and the New Zealanders forcing them to run the world's highest equity ratios, um, their ROEs are going to be under pressure. So it's a complex uh, conundrum, Uh, it'll be interesting to see what falls out in the mix, but I think competition is definitely a panacea uh, for lending costs.
0: And actually, another opportunity to minimize the bank's funding costs was highlighted by APRA at a debt conference um, a couple of weeks ago in an update on its proposed total loss-absorbing capacity, TLAC policy. APRA acknowledged that using illiquid and volatile tier two bonds to fill a hundred billion dollar plus gap in its TLAC target has no global precedent and it is likely to be subject to severe capacity and pricing constraints. Capstream's Steve Goldman told the conference that if APRA implemented this policy using T2 debt, the spread on these bonds would likely jump a massive 50 to 100 basis points higher than the sharp 40 beeps spike observed in November when APRA's consultation paper was released. And this is consistent with independent surveys of global investors, which found that using T2 to plug APRA's TLAC hole would cost the banks between two and a half and three times their current senior bond spreads. So importantly, you know, APRA noted that its consultation process had identified cheaper and more liquid alternatives. And in particular, there's a strong global consensus that a more cost effective and scalable way to raise to raise TLAC capital is through so-called Tier 3, otherwise known as non-preferred senior um, bonds, which APRO can still bail into equity when a bank goes bust. So based on investor surveys and recent local transactions, non-preferred senior would cost the major banks between 1.25 and one half times their senior bond spreads if it was issued in accordance with global best practice or about half the cost of funding TLAC via tier two. And the global non-preferred senior market is roughly 10 times the size of the T2 market as well. Which would allow the banks to comfortably meet APRA's target of increasing their bail inable funding by 4 to 5% of their risk weighted assets. On APRA's numbers, this would boost the major banks' total capital ratios to slightly below the middle of their global peers, notably, not near the top quarter. Uh, while APRA is targeting unquestionably strong core equity ratios around the top quartile of offshore peers, it has adopted a more reasonable middle-of-the-road target for the bank's TLAC ratios. So Chris, any further thoughts on APRA's recent remarks on TLAC from Pat Brennan and Wayne Byers?
1: Yeah, uh, why? Why some officials had thought that T two would be a simpler solution compared to non-preferred senior, but I think this is only true insofar as it might have saved the regulator from having to draft a new prudential standard. I mean, capital market participants globally, I think, universally agree that tier two will be much more complex for the banks to fund than non-preferred senior, which is cheaper, and as you mentioned, has substantially greater market capacity. Uh, for investors, non-preferred senior comes with superior credit ratings than tier two. It ranks above tier two in the capital structure, um, and most importantly, it much larger portfolio limits because it's classified as senior not subordinated debt. It's actually um, quite fascinating how much a simple label change, um, how much of a consequence that can have on ultimate Uh, investor appetite and capital allocations. Now, some might quibble that non-preferred senior is subordinated to old-style senior bonds, which it is. But then, you know, old-style senior bonds are themselves subordinated to deposits, which in turn rank below secured uh, super senior covered bonds. So it's all about the relativities. Um, I'd also say that since tier two bonds of the current kind, so the Basel III tier two bonds were first uh, introduced in Australia, um, that was only actually... 2013, so they're only a relatively uh, recent innovation, and they've certainly never been bailed in. So, I'm not sure how one could argue they're a more proven product. Than non-preferred senior, which overall is a much bigger asset class globally than tier two. Um, I think this is especially true of Aussie Bank tier two, which global investors have repeatedly criticised for having somewhat nebulous bail-in rights um, that you know could, in theory, be used as a going concern rather than a legitimate gone concern capital, um, which has made them more expensive for banks. Aussie banks, that is, to issue in foreign jurisdictions. Um, and they're the same you know, geographies that are expected to provide the vast bulk of our TLAC funding. To be clear, for those who are boring, um, when we talk about going and going concerned capital, going concerned capital is basically equity capital or capital that can be used to recapitalize a bank that is um, still operating, that has not failed. So um, traditionally that's kind of captured common equity tier one capital or ordinary shares and also additional tier one capital or hybrids. And hybrids have that uh, capital trigger where they convert into ordinary shares if the bank's equity ratio falls to a very low level, uh, less than half current levels at 5.125%. Tier 2 capital is meant to be gone, concerned capital, and is not meant to be bailed in whilst the bank's still operating. It's only meant to be bailed in uh, once the bank's effectively died, so it's become non viable in APRA's parlance. Um, and uh, the regulator wants to convert those bonds into equity to recapitalize the bad bank and turn it into a good bank um, to revive it. Um, I think the other interesting thing is, so we've actually had now, um, within a few weeks, two APRA uh, leaders talk about this subject. We've had uh, the brilliant Pat uh, Brennan, followed by the no less impressive, in fact, Um, Peerless uh, Wayne Byers, APRA's chairman, who's done an amazing job uh, since he got into the seat and has been, without a shadow of doubt, uh, Australia's toughest banking regulator. And certainly, we would argue, a vast improvement over his predecessor. Um, And all power to uh, APRA and Wayne Byers for embracing uh, the unquestionably strong capital framework that crucially protects depositors. We've long argued that depositors don't have a voice in this country. There's no depositor lobby group. There's no organised association representing depositors. So shareholders are extremely vocal. They're represented by all the fund managers and all the executives who own bank equity, and most of the bank uh, leaders are you know, large holders of bank equity. But depositors who the amazing people at APRA are ultimately tasked to protect have no one representing them, and our concern is that you know in the past, APRA, risks becoming captive to equity because creditors aren't being representative, represented, um, and you know, bias to his uh, credit. Excuse the pun, has re- talked a lot about the power of market discipline, and you know, I guess I would like to think that's the sort of role that investors like ourselves play um, in offering alternative perspectives to equity who just want to maximise returns on equity um, and leverage all other things being equal. You know, on that note, is um, during the week. We also uh, saw Wayne Byers speak, and as I mentioned, so we've seen both Brennan and Byers speak on this subject. Um, but Byers has advocated shifting away from remunerating bank executives using exclusively returns on equity or shareholder total returns, um, which has been the practice to date. I mean, for the last 10 years, I've been saying the same thing. That's just a, um, a payoff function um, that represents equity, but doesn't represent the rest of the capital structure. And um, bankers need a much more balanced I think, compensation regime that account for the interests of all the stakeholders and that they are the ultimate stewards for. Now, on Bayes' speech, what was interesting was um, that buyers said, and I've just got it in front of me here, he said, we've received feedback that our proposals need some revision. It was pretty point blank in relation to that. Um, The November paper written by, or published by APRA was a consultation paper only. It's a very good paper. Um, I think the four to five percent TLAC target, so the the idea that we're gonna increase um, the stack of balanceable bonds, bonds that can be converted into equity um, within the bank's capital structure um, by four to five percent of risk-weighted assets is entirely reasonable. Um, The reason that target was selected by APRA is it puts the banks um, at the middle of their uh, 55 global peers that APRA has selected. doesn't make them by any stretch of the imagination top quartile or unquestionably strong. I don't think APRA is trying to shoot the lights out on um, you know the quantum of vulnerable debt. It just wants a reasonable amount. The idea is this: this gone concern capital you're only, only going to need if APRA has effectively failed in its mission, and one of the two big to fail banks, heaven forbid, have actually um, you know gone uh, tits up. Um, I think you know the unwritten belief in. Uh, markets amongst uh, government agencies and credit rating agencies it is is that it is practically impossible uh, for a major bank uh, to be allowed to fail and hence they are actually truly too big to fail and this is a bit of an academic exercise, uh, nonetheless an important one. Um, and so buyers continues that he, he said that we will look very carefully at the uh, feedback but we don't want to jeopardise um, he says, one, developing a framework that is, quite relatively simple to implement and understand. And two, he said, we don't want to jeopardize the access to funding that high credit ratings provide. Now, one of the really interesting things, things in Pat Brennan's speech that the market and investors and rating agencies honed in on was that he emphasised that uh, APRA's TLAC policy is not trying to eliminate uh, taxpayer support, rather it is trying to minimise the costs associated with bailing out a bank. Um, and you know the major bank senior bonds do benefit from three notches of government support under Standard and Poor's credit rating framework that lifts them from A minus to AA minus. Uh, and I think SP was probably of the view that that was a pretty important statement that um, APRA made uh, via uh, Brennan's speech. But it was fascinating and I think entirely appropriate for buyers to also touch on the same subject in a different um, fashion when he said that we don't wanna jeopardize the access to funding that high credit ratings provide. Now, as a country that has run current account deficits for over 100 years, Australia is heavily reliant on offshore funding underwrite our investment and obviously the major banks are uh, massive conduits of that funding and the major banks are in turn uh, very dependent on foreign capital uh, and foreign borrowings uh, to provide um, finance to businesses and households. And the cost of that capital is uh, crucially predicated on the ratings of the major bank's liabilities, their bonds. And so um, APRO is really stressing that it is in the public interest that those ratings are protected Um, And I completely agree because if we lose those high ratings, then it's gonna be more expensive for the major banks to raise money and that's gonna be directly translated into a high cost of borrowing for small business, big business and households. Um, And I don't think APRA wants to throw the baby out with the bathwater in terms of designing a TLA policy that has the unanticipated consequence of just increasing borrowing costs. And indeed the financial system inquiry Uh, explicitly tasked uh, or explicitly recommended that APRA adopt a solution that is consistent with global best practice and that doesn't put uh, a solution that doesn't put uh, the banking system at a competitive disadvantage in funding markets to the rest of the world. Uh, So, you know, I think that's an important acknowledgement by Wayne Byers. And the other point in relation to his comment that um, they don't want to jeopardize developing a framework that is relatively simple to implement and understand. Some folks are saying, well, that kind of means he's talking about tier two. But as we've just discussed, tier two is unambiguously much more complex uh, to implement than non-preferred senior. It's gonna have much, much high costs. It's gonna have much, much lower liquidity. And it's gonna embed in the capital structures of the banking system. And remember, TLAC doesn't just apply to the major banks, it'll also apply to the, some of the other uh, you know, larger ADIs, presumably you know, uh, Macquarie, Suncorp, maybe Bendigo, BOQ, and AMP. Um, And and so tier two, um, which is not consistent with global best practice, will be um, clearly more complex as a solution than uh, non-preferred senior. However, the simplicity statement may relate to the type of non-preferred senior. APRA has two choices. It could uh, adopt a contractual uh, tier three instrument. This is all gonna get very technical, so I'm probably gonna lose listeners who aren't interested in uh, the financial system. Um, But for those who are, so APRA can adopt a contractual tier three instrument and that would be really easy for them to develop and implement. They just draft a new prudential standard and say, hey, guess what, you can issue a non-preferred senior or tier three, it'll rank ahead of tier two in the capital structure, and it'll have uh, the following bail terms. Now, one of the things I think is really, really important is that the balance terms emulate or capitalize on the best products that we've seen offshore, and the best product clearly to date is the Canadian non-preferred senior product which trades uh, at a very similar cost to their non-bailable traditional old-style senior bonds. And what the Canadians said was, you can only bail this bond uh, when the bank goes bust into equity, you can't write it off. Currently with T1 and T2, APRA can write them off. So I think if APRA wants to minimize the tax that this policy will ultimately impose on the nation, um, it should adopt that measure. So you'd ideally want non-preferred senior or T3 only bailing into equity, point one. Point two, um, APRA's current bailing rights, so whenever APRA feels that the bank is non-viable, the problem is APRA has never defined non-viability and nobody knows what it means. That's that Byzantine character of the bailing right that I referred to earlier. So we would... Um, Ideally, if we were to uh, emulate what the Canadians have done, you want to tie that bail-in right to minimise regulatory error and to minimise the cost of capital to a clear sort of legislated or statutory action. The Canadians have tied it to the Canadian regulator taking control of a failed bank. Under the Banking Act, um, you could effectively hook the bail-in right to uh, APRA um, exercising its rights to either appoint a statutory manager, a person to control the bank, or to put it into administration. And those events are clearly only events that pertain to a bank that is now a gone concern. And this is meant to be gone concern capital. So again, you bail in the bond, you turn into equity, Uh, the bank now has equity and you can transform that bad bank which failed and went into bankruptcy de facto into a good bank. But by linking APRA's ability to bail into equity to the Banking Act's Uh, powers that allow APRA to appoint a statutory manager or put a bank into administration. Creditors have comfort that APRA won't exercise the bail-in rights you know, miles before that event in some sort of, you know, brain explosion. And that's really important. Another measure that the Canadians have introduced, as have the Americans under Dodd-Frank, Title II of Dodd-Frank, and I'm sure everyone who's listening at this stage of the podcast has read Title II of Dodd-Frank. And I'm sure you've all also read, word for word, as I have, the uh, European Union's Bank Resolution and Recovery Directive, the BRRD. And under both those, uh, all three systems, they have a clear credit and no worse off protection. What that means is that if the regular regulator bails creditors into equity um, that's worthless. Um, or on terms uh, that aren't consistent with what they uh, would receive in bankruptcy. So credit no worse off basically means you can sue the government if they act in a punitive fashion that doesn't result in an economic outcome that is consistent with what you would have got if the bank had been put into bankruptcy and standard court processes have been followed. This is crucial because we've seen time and time again that regulator, regulators are uh, as afflicted uh, by human error and as infallible as the rest of us. And so having that discipline Mechanism where investors have recourse to the courts and um, have that, that protection is uh, very valuable. And the International Monetary Fund, in its review of the Australian financial system, said explicitly that APRA should uh, adopt a credited and no worse off regime. So, if you have um, all those attributes, a contractual non preferred senior instrument that is implemented through an APRA prudential standard, that it can be bailed into equity only in the event that the bank has truly gone bust and APRA has exercised its statutory powers and investors are protected by a credit no worse off regime. I think this instrument's gonna be very highly rated and I think it's gonna trade very, very close to senior, which is what everybody wants. I mean, APRA wants to minimize the costs of its TLAC policy. Um, Now, the alternative the banks are talking about um, or have been pushing for is a statutory solution. That's where APRA basically changes the Banking Act and puts all this uh, paraphernalia into the legislation itself. Uh, My sense is APRA is quite resistant to this um, you know, I don't have a strong view either way. I just think the contractual solution is gonna be much easier and simpler to use APRA's words. Um, they get their TLAC, um, they get it quickly. Um, they can always update it you know, and change it very easily, whereas if you enact legislation, it's obviously gonna be very hard to change. My understanding is when APRA updated the Banking Act in March 2018, that was a pretty painful process. So I don't really have an ax either way, um, but that's, I suspect, just reading between the lines, and I may be reading too much into this. That's what um, the uh, impressive Wayne buyers may have been referring to when he talked about uh, simplicity of execution. Now, I think, Ying e we have been talking for almost an hour. How long have we been talking for?
0: Close to an hour and 10 minutes.
1: An hour and 10 minutes. And we kind of uh, originally planned on having a circa 30 to 40 minute podcast. So we have run over time, but there has been, this has been a target rich, content rich environment. If you haven't seen a YouTube video of me debating John Adams, it's pretty funny. Um, You know, I didn't come in with much preparation, to be honest, even though I'd like to think that I presented in a fairly prepared uh, way, or I appeared prepared. Um, I hadn't really had these big heated housing debates for the best part of a decade. Um, this guy was an expert in search of a headline and I'd like to think I tore him asunder so have a look on YouTube otherwise if you want to reach out to us and have a chat um, you can always email info at callabarcapital.com that's info at callabarcapital.com and um, we will be very responsive Um, we're pretty communicative I hope I haven't offended anyone Um, and please uh, read or listen, sorry, to the disclaimer. That's very, very important. Uh, And with that, we'll sign off. Goodbye.
0: This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.